A project is sort of like um, a piece of music. You have crescendos and then there are very quiet times. You know, so you had that dun 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 so every photograph in a project has a job to do, and some of them are bridges from one idea to the next. You're listening to She Does, a series that features women working in media, all forms of media. We wanted to know how these women arrived at where they are today. So we asked and found out and thought you might like to know too. I'm Elaine Sheldon. And I'm Sarah Ginsberg. And today, we would like to introduce you to Maggie Stieber, a prolific documentary photographer who's worked in 65 countries all around the world, focusing on humanitarian, cultural, and social stories. And later, you'll meet Brooke Singer, our featured music maker. She's the voice and songwriter behind French for Rabbits. I met up with Maggie back in the spring in Miami, her home base, and where she was teaching a master's class for teenage photographers. Right now we're at uh, the Young Arts Foundation in Miami. And we have five days to work with them, to look at their work, to give them assignments. We culminate with a, an exhibition. I really love to teach. I did try a stint at full-time university teaching, and I loved it for the first two years. And the third year, I was so ready <laughs> to leave. I sort of think of myself as this wild horse running across the plain. And once in a while, I like to come into the corral and help the farmer plow his field. I love workshops. They're like intense, short love affairs, and a lot can happen. I was standing there, absolutely starstruck, and wondering if these high school kids really knew how lucky they were to be learning from Maggie. This is a woman who has received the Leica Medal of Excellence in recognition from the World Press Photo Foundation, the Overseas Press Club, Pictures of the Year, and the Medal of Honor for Distinguished Service to Journalism from the University of Missouri. For over three decades, Maggie has worked in Haiti, a topic that she and I spent a lot of time discussing, and an experience which led to her book, Dancing on Fire. But she has also documented many other places, conflicts, and issues all around the world, as well as personal moments, including her mother's struggle with dementia. When I look at Maggie's work, it feels so much deeper than a typical single photograph. Maggie has mastered the ability to actually take you to a place through a photo and share the emotion and energy through one moment. I love how in every photograph you feel movement and action, and the frames are so full. She isn't afraid to use what's going on in the background. Maybe it's some stuff in the yard or toys, but instead of just throwing it out of focus, she uses it all. And there's this nice balance of each person being in their natural environment, but also working with the photographer. Maggie's work has been featured in National Geographic magazine, The New York Times magazine, Smithsonian magazine, AARP, The Guardian, and Geo magazine, among others. And is featured in the Library of Congress and in private collections. But Maggie also loves photo editing. She served as director of photography and assistant managing editor for features at the Miami Herald. Her work led the Herald to two Pulitzer nominations and a Pulitzer Prize itself. 
In 2013, Maggie was named as one of the 11 Women of Vision by National Geographic magazine, publishing a book and touring in an exhibition in five American cities. All of these awards and recognition took a lifetime of work. And it's almost impossible to sum up the life achievements and challenges of someone with Maggie's experience level in just 30 minutes. But hey, let's give it a try. And let's start where we usually do, with her childhood, her upbringing. The story starts in Electra, Texas, a tiny town where she was born. But she was raised in Austin, Texas, by her mother. My parents divorced when I was six months old, and I I grew up without my father. Which was just fine, because I have to say my mother was full-circle kind of parent. Maggie's mother, Madge, was a scientist. She was eccentric and creative, but she was also very strict. So it's kind of a crazy personality type because on one hand, she would sing and dance around the house and she really encouraged me to be very creative and uh, see the world and think about it. And and she was very interested and we would spend time in reading encyclopedias, but then she would be very, very strict sometimes. But I have to say, looking back, that she was an exemplary parent. I can see things in myself now that are because of her, and I wish she was still here so I could really say that to her. Madge has since passed away. Maggie documented her mother's last days through beautiful and sensitive black and white photography. We have a link on our website. You don't want to miss it. But if we go back, back to when Madge and Maggie were living in Austin, we find Maggie at the University of Texas, working her way through college. And actually, when she entered UT, she was a French major. I was going to be a high school French teacher in Texas where I can assure you, honey, nobody wants to learn French or even Spanish, which is a language they really could use. But I loved French. I studied it as a little girl from the time I was 10. And I hit this course that required us to read three medieval French novels a week. This was in old French. Well, I just couldn't, I couldn't keep up. And so I made a D in the class. And the French teacher called me in and she said, you cannot make a D in your major. And at the same time, I had a friend who was studying journalism, and she took a photo course. And so she would come uh, and ask me uh, to help her because she would have to do an assignment on action. So I would run across a field, I would dive into a pool, or things like that. And she would come home from the darkroom at school with these pictures. And I was just amazed because just a few hours before, we were just doing this silly stuff. And then there were the pictures. We had old family photographs and that sort of thing, but I had not realized the magic of the dark room. <laughs> and uh, I thought, wow, this is fantastic, and I would really love to learn to do this. So I took a photo course in the art department, and that was it. I was bitten. That was it. Maggie decided to study at UT's journalism school, but she continued to take classes in the art school where she had teachers like Russell Lee, 
He was one of the Farm Security Administration photographers that photographed this country during the Depression. And Mr. Lee was the most encouraging person. You could be the worst, most, oh, the worst photographer in the world, but he would always find the one little thing in the picture that he would say, okay, build on, this is wonderful right here, build on that. And he was always so enthusiastic. And on Fridays, he would invite some of us students to go to his house and he would give us liquor. <laughs> he would give us a drink and then we would go have Mexican food. Eventually, Lee retired, but the man who took up his position afterwards had just as much to offer. Gary Winogrand, you've probably heard of him. He's widely considered one of the greatest photographers of the 20th century. His 25 years of work documenting New York City and American life from the 1950s through the early 1980s is featured in a collection at the Museum of Modern Art in New York. But he, I think, uh, taught me how to look at pictures. I think that's where I got this uh, sense of love for picture editing. So I think I was, maybe I didn't have the most extensive education in photography, but I had two of the most exemplary teachers I could have asked for. After graduating, Maggie moved to a small town outside of Houston and started working for a newspaper, the Galveston Daily News. Tiny little paper, tiny little town. I wrote uh, everything from the police report to obits, and then I could photograph as much as I wanted and do picture pages and layouts. So as a first job experience out of school, it was magnificent. I'm just not much of a small-town gal. In the early 1970s, Maggie moved to New York City. It was so bohemian, and there were artists everywhere, and it was cheap enough, and you could go to this neighborhood, and it was this kind of person, Italian, and somebody else, it was Spanish Harlem, and you know, it was magical, and it was affordable. It just seemed like something was gonna happen in front of you every moment. Her first job in New York City was as a photo editor for the Associated Press. I loved being a picture editor. I still love picture editing. And uh, it brings me great joy, to be honest. Um, to It's like putting a puzzle together. It's so exciting, actually. And I love to look at other people's pictures so much. I look at anything. I mean, really, anything. <laughs> Maggie loved her job, selecting, editing, positioning, and publishing photos to accompany a text story. She did it for four years. And after that, her superiors felt it was time for her to go into management. But I'm a person who likes to have her hands in the dirt. You know, that wild horse thing. So I quit and I went to Africa to cover a war for two years in what is now Zimbabwe. They were the last two years of a guerrilla war. And I did a lot of work on the changing society. Something about Africa, for me anyway, when my feet are planted on that continent, there's this silent thunder that seems to roar up through my whole body, and I feel that I belong there. 
And I, I don't know why, but it's just something very powerful. Africa was Maggie's training ground. That's where she learned how to tell stories, where she first began to build a body of work. After two years of documenting war, there was peace. Maggie felt her job was done. She returned to the United States. I had this portfolio and people looked at it and they said, well, first of all, this is a war that doesn't interest anybody in the United States and, and it's news photography. And so I had to sort of start over. This was a huge blow, but it didn't discourage Maggie. And she definitely didn't stop. She just shifted her focus a bit. She started looking around, trying to find little unknown stories, stories that hadn't been told, stories living under the radar. And some were very random. I found a cat in a magic shop in New York City that did card tricks. And I went to a doll hospital that was run by this very eccentric man who actually thought he was a doctor. And some stories were a little less random. I did a lot of work in Cuba for three years on my own dime and time. Again, I was just trying to use it to learn how to tell stories, but long-term kinds of projects. And then I started working in Haiti, and Haiti just got me. I wanted to tell the stories of people who struggled. Those are complicated issues, and you, you have to know a lot about the people, their history, their culture, um, what they think, what's important. I was not interested in history until I started working in Haiti, and it was because there I realized that without knowing the history of Haiti, that at the very start was this slave revolt that was singular in history and that colored everything after that. But I also think there's this sort of deliciousness about knowing the history of a country, the history of a culture, the history of a people, the history of a person. These are fascinating things to me. And to be able to tell those stories with photographs is enthralling. Knowing history can really help build bridges, but it also informs your work, your photographs, gives them more gravitas. And Maggie has done everything in her own power to educate herself on Haiti. She even speaks Creole. She finds it unacceptable when media makers don't take the time to self-educate on a culture, especially in times of crisis. It's amazing how people will let you into their lives if you really are interested. If you're just there for a picture, forget it. In fact, please don't go if that's all you're trying to do in a country or with beleaguered people or people who are suffering just because you're trying to build a portfolio. Please don't go. Just don't do that because they've already suffered enough. And I can tell you after the 2010 earthquake in Haiti, a lot of photographers who had never been to Haiti before were coming and they were stepping over people suffering there, were, there was no room in the hospitals. People were out on the sidewalk, just wounded and not being able to receive medical attention. And people were stepping over them and photographing them. It was horrible. It was horrible. It was so horrible, I couldn't photograph it. If you really are sincerely interested beyond this getting a great picture, people will tell you everything about themselves. And I think it enriches your own life and your own living experience but also just this generosity that people can have and share with you is such a privilege. So. Yeah, and 
I understand you're getting emotional because I get emotional mm-hmm. over this too. It is, it's huge and it's, it's a responsibility too and, and you have to treat it that way and be sensitive to the fact that this is a real person's life and yes. your What if it was you? Yeah, your photographs will affect them. Yes, and, and especially in regards to Haiti or Africa, this has happened a lot where people come and, you know, there's something kind of sexy and easy about poverty to photograph. Uh, it's kind of like uh, poverty porn. It's not that you shouldn't photograph that because that's the reality of people's lives. But I became aware after just working in Haiti intensely for about six months, the first six months, that I was not showing Haiti. I was showing a portion of Haiti and that there was this very vibrant daily life, that there was this extraordinary culture, that there was this exquisite beauty. So I, I realized that I wasn't giving Haiti a fair shake and I became very aware of that. But our images are powerful things and so if all you ever see about a country or a beleaguered people is this tragedy, then you think that's all they are. People have no idea, so it's always portrayed as this failed state, when at one point it was probably the most sophisticated country in the Caribbean. If you know the literature and the painting of Haiti, those things alone are amazing, just amazing. Knowing those things inform your work and also inform you that this portrayal is not right, it's not only not fair, it's not accurate. And so I started to really look for the beauty and sort of the daily life, just to balance the scales. Haiti and Maggie have had a long relationship. The small country has provided Maggie with a lot, emotionally and professionally. The photographs she took in Haiti helped to get her foot in the door at the National Geographic magazine. So I I have a responsibility, if for no other reason, uh, because I have gained so much from Haiti. But much more importantly than my career, I would say that I've learned lessons, life lessons in Haiti. I'm fond of saying that um, Haiti chooses you. You don't choose Haiti. If Haiti doesn't want you there, she will do everything in her power to make you run screaming for the next plane out of the country. But if she wants you there, she wrings your heart out on a daily basis. But she shows you things that you will never forget and that change you and change you for the better. So I owe a lot to Haiti. I mean, I've I've almost been killed there several times. Um, Could you talk about that? The most dramatic time was in 1988. I had a grant from the Alicia Patterson Foundation to work in Haiti. I was spending a lot of time photographing this priest, Father uh, Jean-Bertrand Aristide, who eventually became president. 
but he was a very outspoken liberation theology priest. And uh, he was kind of a phenomenon. And his church was on the edge of the worst slum in Port-au-Prince, the capital. And he would rant and rave against the American government. And I have to say, the American government has done a lot of very bad things in Haiti. And the Americans have too. You know, we invaded Haiti. The U.S. Marines invaded Haiti in 1915 and stayed until 1934. They built schools, hospitals, and roads, uh, and they killed a lot of Haitians. One Sunday, Maggie showed up to photograph the priests at a special mass service. Everyone was wearing white. When I came into the church for the first time, I was completely searched by the church members. And then after I came in, I was the only foreigner besides a foreign nun who was there. Uh, they locked the doors and they chained them shut. And I thought, what's this? What's going on? And so Aristide started the Mass, and just as he raised the host to be blessed, uh, all of a sudden there were these huge explosions and guns started firing. And uh, there was a group of about 40 men outside with machine guns and machetes and clubs and they broke through the doors and they started shooting and clubbing people and killing people with the machetes and uh, people were screaming and running it was just this horrible horrible thing and at first i was taking pictures i just started photographing as a response and then i realized that i needed to get out that i was going to be killed along with everybody else who was being killed Maggie ran to the only door that was a safe escape, but so did everybody else. The door was jammed with people trying to get out. She was stuck. And so I panicked. And I, in a panic, you just do stupid things. I ran right down the middle aisle of the church toward the front door to try to get out, and I into the arms of a man with a machete. And he raised the machete. And you know, when these things happen to you, the way you remember them is in slow motion. It happened very fast. But the way you remember it is in slow motion, and I just remember looking in the, into this man's eyes and seeing nothing. There was no humanity. And that scared me so badly that I turned on my heel and I ran away. And I was wearing an old dress that day, and he, he lost his grip on my shoulder but held the dress. The dress tore down to almost to my rear end. He was so surprised that he let go of the dress and that allowed me to escape. And I went to the door and I just put my arms out around all the people that I could and I pushed with all my might. And I don't think it was me, I think it was just the moment, but everybody fell through the door. Maggie and the others ran into the courtyard. People were being shot. The church was set on fire. And so I stayed outside, and I was photographing and helping people, and there was a woman who was pregnant who had been wounded. And so we collected as many rocks as we could to use as weapons. And I was trying to take pictures at the same time, but I have to tell you, it was not my first priority. And for three hours, they would shoot at us, and I just expected to be slaughtered any moment. And then suddenly, some of the little street boys that I had been photographing over a two-year period came in, and they surrounded me. <laughs> and they were so sweet and wonderful. They saved my life on several occasions, actually. Um, and uh, suddenly, uh, there was just quiet. 
The little boys and Maggie made their escape. They broke through a window and jumped into the front yard of the church. There were bodies everywhere. Cars were burnt, including Maggie's. They waved down a taxi, and Maggie went to her hotel. She called the Associated Press and filed a first-person report. The gang of men who did this uh, went and took over a radio station and the TV station, and they they said uh, that uh, we know who was in the church, and we know there was a foreign journalist, and we're looking for her. And so a friend of mine who was an anthropologist had heard this on the radio, and he knew I was staying at this hotel. So he came and he said, we have to get you out of here. And uh, so he took me to his family home. And the next morning, they put me on a plane, and I left. But anyway, it wasn't my time to die. And, uh, and I, I went home, and I had this grant, and the foundation said, it's fine if you don't, you don't keep the money. You don't have to go back. Uh, but I thought, I do have to go back. I have to go back. I can't not go back. So I, it took me about four months. I, had, I did suffer for some, from some PTSD. I shook uncontrollably for about a week. Why did you go back? I loved Haiti so much that I, I felt that Haiti was supposed to be part of my life. And, um, Even if it meant you might die? Well, there's worse places to die, you know? I mean, well, I didn't die, did I? And I, so far, knock on wood, I haven't died there at all. But I just, I missed it too much, and I think it's a place I'm supposed to be. And so uh, if one day that happens, well, I'll join a huge crowd of souls <laughs> that haunt Haiti. Okay, so that's 26. So over 30 years, what is there one photograph that you've taken that really sticks with you? And could you describe that photograph? Um, it's a picture of a little girl in this very barren landscape. And she's dancing in this blue lace dress that her mother probably bought her. It's not a brand new dress. It's probably Pepe, what they call Pepe, which is used clothing that comes from this country um, in big bales. To me, she is, uh, embodies the Haitian spirit because in this barren landscape where there is nothing, where there is nothing but hardship, there is no water, there are no trees, there is nothing beautiful. There is this great beauty that is the spirit that it cannot be mashed down by the suffering. And to me, that's who Haitians are. They've taught me to have greater courage. It's violent, there's no security, there's no justice, there's corruption. I mean, it just sounds like hell, as though the fates pointed to Haiti and said, aha, this is where we will put the portal between heaven and hell. I've worked in 65 countries on all kinds of stories, and I have never met any people that 
for me, you know, resonate in my life like these people. I love them. Yeah. I love them. Maggie feels very fortunate to still be a photographer in the shifting newspaper and magazine business. And I'm still working, I still get assignments and I still propose things and at a time when older photographers are falling like flies and people who had staff positions on newspapers who thought they would always. I remember early on when I was very young, staff photographers would sort of look down on you if you were freelance because, oh, she's not good enough to get a job. You know, and now they're having to start over. She's embraced new media and technology as a photographer, and she recognizes how it has changed her craft and how it has opened up the field to scores of people, both young and old. She's an avid Instagram user. You should follow her. But she heeds some warnings to young photographers. Over a billion pictures are made every day around the world, which is so thrilling. And that we have programs like Instagram that we can, and Facebook, we can see pictures and we make friends all over the world. It's really an amazing thing that brings us together, the internet, but it's also destroyed a lot of things. So now uh, there's a lot of young people who really want to be photographers. If you want to be a photographer, find something that you can photograph over time and don't be in a hurry. Don't be in a hurry. Take your time, build a project. You know, find something that you can stick with, that you can go back to, that you can grow in. That there's a lot of variety within it. So just find something that you interests you and you can stick with and build a project that where you have 25 to 40 really powerful pictures. Now, not every picture in a project has to be dramatic. A project is sort of like a piece of music. You have crescendos and then there were very quiet times, you know, so you had that dun 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 So every photograph in a project has a job to do. And some of them are bridges from one idea to the next. And you just and show your work to as many people and not necessarily your friends, although your friends are good too, but if you can find picture editors or a mentor and just work with somebody. And even if you can't, don't get discouraged. So practice, dedication, and maybe most importantly, ideas. Maggie says in order to be a photographer, you have to have ideas. And ideas can come from anywhere. And I find ideas because I have an active imagination. And I have an active imagination because I look at film and I read literature and I listen to music and all of these, I look at art and believe it or not, all of these things inform you as a person but also inform your imagination and ideas are born in your imagination. And they can be based in reality, uh, or they can be completely, you know, fantastical. And I learned a long time ago that whenever you go into a new country or a new place to work, do all the research you can do, look at the literature, look at the art, read the history, and then go in like a baby, like you know nothing, and let those people teach you. And even if you're an enthusiast, and a, uh, maybe somebody who only takes pictures as a tourist, 
Go and sit down and talk to people before you shoot them with a long lens. I mean, that's why you're there. It's not so you can go back and show people a picture that everybody in the world has already taken, right? Really take advantage of that you're in a different culture and go talk to that little lady selling candy on the corner, you know, because she has a story. And maybe she'll invite you home if you're lucky and give you a meal and you'll meet her family and your life will change. Thanks to Maggie Steber for taking the time to sit down and talk with me. Visit our website, shedoespodcast.com, to find out more about Maggie and view some of her photographs. This episode was produced by us, Sarah Ginsberg, and Elaine Sheldon, and sound design is by Billy Wrasnick. And this show is a product of Slate's Panoply Network. The music you heard in today's episode is by French for Rabbits, a New Zealand-based dream folk project made up of Brooks singer, songwriter, and pianist, and John Fitzgerald on guitar. The two met after high school and started working on this project in 2012. One of the things that first struck me about French for Rabbits is Brooke's voice. The vocals are stunning, folk-influenced and ghost-like. But Brooke had no intentions of becoming a singer. It all came about accidentally. I didn't used to be a singer. I used to just be a songwriter. I'd write for other musicians. And then um, I moved cities and I didn't have anyone to sing, so... I had to start singing, but I guess it wasn't part of my identity, so I I found it really terrifying to start performing in front of other people. So instead, I used the words French for rabbits on a band camp page, so no, no one knew it was me. Of course, eventually people figured it out. And Brooke said her style has changed over the years as she develops her singing voice. But songwriting is a lifelong passion. She started writing songs as a child, sitting at the piano, coming up with her own tunes. She recalls her first one. And I was maybe six years old when I wrote my first song. It was about my cat who died. French for Rabbits may be best known for their songs about the sea. Brooke said their home country, New Zealand, influences their work and performance. In New Zealand, because it's so small, you can end up opening for some pretty cool artists. I think the first time that happened to us, we opened for Jose Gonzalez at this like incredible vineyard in Queenstown, which is like this quite spectacular place. I didn't realise it until I left, but it's quite isolated. I think nature's like a really big aspect to our music. I've always lived by the sea, so... It tends to creep into my lyrics, even if I try to avoid it. Like I'll be writing a song and I'll get to the the third verse and I'll be like, okay, not going to put a a C reference in here. And then suddenly it creeps in and I'm like, oh, it sounds good, so I'll leave it there. I'm a minor from like I like taking a situation that's happened to me and I turn them into songs so I do that quite a lot I like I like bad things to happen occasionally so I can write a really good song 
Um, if nothing bad happens for a while, that means I'm probably not writing many songs. French for Rabbits is working on their new EP now. Visit iTunes to download their EP, Claimed by the Sea, and their latest album, Spirits. You won't regret it. And visit shedoespodcast.com slash music for links and for our full interview with Brooke. Thank you to our illustrator, Christine Cover, and our production accomplice, Elijah Case. And thank you to Filmmaker Magazine for sharing five takeaways from this episode. In episode 10, we asked you, our listeners, to spare a dollar a show if you felt it was worth it. And many of you have. And we're so thankful to have our listeners invested in this passion project. But we need many more of you to come on board with us and help. Visit shedoespodcast.com slash support to make a monthly or one-time donation. Also, if you want to help others find us, consider leaving us a review and rating on iTunes. We love hearing from you, and we thank you for listening to She Does. She does.